extended family in California. It was a full week, Christmas celebrations, New Year's, a birthday party, uh, all kinds of activities with siblings and my nieces and nephews. So I just wanted to say on behalf of my family, thank you for making it possible for us to go visit our family out there. Um, it's really special to be able to have that opportunity. So thanks a lot. Okay, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So we're on the home stretch. We're spending, uh, over the last few months, we've been studying the Upper Room Discourse. And so this is kind of chapters 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John. And it's the final series of teaching from Jesus to his disciples at the Passover meal on the evening before he's crucified. Now, John's Gospel is unique in this way. Right as the action is starting to pick up, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law are plotting to kill Jesus, John slows down the story to focus on the intimate details of Jesus' teaching in the upper room. Why does he do this? There's a pastor and theologian, Eugene Peterson. He, he points out that this record of this conversation that we've been studying for months now is deliberate, that, that John is doing something on purpose here to help us understand what Jesus is about to do on the cross. So this is what Eugene Peterson says. You'll see it on the screen here. He says, John is slowing us down. John is quieting us down. He's, John is asking us to stop talking and listen and pay attention to this story that we think we know so well. John is inviting us into the company of Jesus for a time of spiritual formation. John is getting us ready. Maybe you need to slow down this morning. Okay, here we are. It's the first week of January. It's been a busy month or two. Maybe you need to quiet your heart from all the busyness Friends, we're going to be looking at the account in these next weeks of Jesus' death and resurrection. And maybe we need to hit the pause button from all the distractions and pay attention to this story, to hear it afresh. Maybe you need to sit in the company of Jesus and get your heart ready. See, the Gospel of John's building this anticipation for what's about to happen in these next chapters. And we need to ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we prepared to witness the events that achieve our redemption with hearts that are soft, hearts that are repentant, hearts that are ready to receive God's grace in Christ. Okay, I mentioned Eugene Peterson. He, he talks about this preparation uh, by telling a story. Uh, many years ago now, uh, Eugene Peterson and his wife received a phone call from one of his sons and his daughter-in-law. And in this phone call, they said, we're pregnant. It's their first grandchild. And so over the next few days, a few days later, Eugene and his wife, Jan, they drove two hours to go visit their son and daughter-in-law to celebrate with them. And Jan, uh, Eugene's wife, Jan, was overflowing with excitement and, and bubbling. I mean, she was so excited. And Eugene, though, found himself feeling rather flat and unemotional about it. He didn't get excited like he thought he should. He should be brimming with pride and, and, and waiting with eager anticipation. But so, so as they drove home, he confided in, with his wife, what is wrong with me? Why don't I feel anything? What am I supposed to do? So she looked at him and she said, build a cradle. Okay, he's a woodworker for fun. And so what 
he took this advice and, and he, lo he loves woodworking. He went home, he researched cradles, he sketched out plans, picked out a choice pieces of Honduran mahogany that he wanted to build it with. He decided to build an early American hooded cradle. Not really sure what that is, but you could probably look it up. So he would go home in the evenings and spend time over the next six months or so in his wood shop, measuring, cutting, sanding this beautiful piece of handmade furniture. And he decided to finish it with multiple coats of, of tongue oil, just a, a way of finishing wood. And so it's an oil that penetrates the surface of, uh, of the wood and gets into the wood fibers. And he worked each piece with fine sandpaper over and over, and then find steel wool over and over. And each application of this tongue oil deepened the color and made the wood seem to glow from within. And all this time as he was working on this piece, he was pondering and praying for the new baby that would lay in this cradle. As his hands worked the wood, as he anointed each piece with oil, he imagined the new life that was to come. And by the time the cradle was ready, he was ready. The anticipation building. You see, Peterson says that we should think of Jesus' conversation with his disciples in the upper room prior to his, his, his going to the cross like cradle building. He says, in fact, the whole of John's gospel up to this point has been a labor of love, building anticipation for what is to come, that the light of the world is conquering darkness, that the bread of life, he's come who will satisfy our spiritual hunger, that the resurrection and the life is about to go to the grave, to rise again to new life, to offer us new life, to be new creations. So here we are. We're at the cusp of John 18. We've been prayerfully laboring and anticipating as we've worked our way through the gospel of John for the last 18 months. And now we're entering the pinnacle moment of the story of redemption. And the passage here that we're going to look at is the pivot point of all history. This is the climactic revelation of God's goodness, his justice, his mercy, and his love. So, are you ready? Yes! <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, grab your Bible and open to John 18. John 18, if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand. We'd love to have you follow along here with me. John 18, verses 1 through 27. And we're going to read the account here of Jesus' arrest and Peter's denial. Now, this passage develops a contrast between Jesus and Peter, which we're going to discover as we go along. So listen to this account of how Jesus affirms who he is as the Messiah, and then also how Peter denies who he is as a disciple. John 18, verse 1. Follow along with me. When he had finished praying... Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. 
Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold. And the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. I love this account. And I hope you see there's a contrast here between Jesus and Peter and even the words that they say. So here's what we're going to do as we look at this passage is the first thing we're going to do is observe a number of predictions that have been fulfilled. Then we're going to examine this contrast between Jesus and Peter as a way of highlighting the unique redemptive work that Jesus is about to do. 
So let's look at those predictions fulfilled. So a few connections to point out. I'm just going to kind of go through them in bullet points here. As we've looked back at the Gospel of John, what we've already studied. Okay, in John 6.39, Jesus had promised that I shall lose none of those the Father has given me. And then we know also from chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus, as the good shepherd, has said, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hands. These promises are fulfilled here as Jesus protects his disciples from being arrested, but it anticipates something greater. The ultimate protection that Jesus provides his followers, especially in light of the wrath of God to come. Okay, that's the first one that we see fulfilled. Secondly, in John 11, if you remember this passage, verses 49 to 51, Caiaphas, as the high priest, had prophesied that Jesus would die. He said these words, It's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He said this in order to say, let Jesus go. If they kill him, it'll be better for all of us. He had no idea what he was saying, but he was actually speaking better than he knew. We see this fulfilled here. Okay, the next one, John 13, 18 to 30, at the beginning of the upper room, Jesus had predicted that Judas would betray him. They're celebrating the Passover, and he says, the person who's dipping in this bowl, he points out here that we see it coming to pass that Judas would betray Jesus. It happens exactly like he said. Okay, then the fourth uh, one is, is Peter's denial, which we see in John 13, 31 to 38. So Jesus was sitting there with his disciples and he looks at Peter who says, I'll never abandon you, Jesus. And he says, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And it comes to pass exactly as Jesus had said. Okay, we could go on. There's, there's probably some other allusions here or connections, promises and predictions made about Jesus. But here's the point. John goes out of his way to connect these promises and their fulfillments in order to show this, that Jesus has sovereign control throughout all of these events. Don't miss this. John is pointing these things out to you to say, don't you realize that Jesus knew exactly what was happening and he predicted it and it's happening exactly as he said. Sovereign control through everything. And we see this even as the arrest unfolds, okay? Go to verse 1. Let's look at the text now. Okay, Jesus leaves the upper room and goes across the Kidron Valley, which is a, it's a 200-foot deep ravine immediately to the east of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So he and his disciples, they walk down this path, down this ravine, and then they scale the hillside on the other side to the west of Jerusalem, or to the east of Jerusalem. And, and they enter a walled garden of olive trees called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane means oil press. Now, verse 2 tells us that this was a typical hangout for Jesus and his disciples. Now, it's possible there was some kind of wealthy landowner who owned this property and maybe became a follower of Jesus, allowing Jesus and his disciples to use this enclosed space as a place to meet privately, especially away from all the crowds. So they could enter the gate, they could go in the courtyard, and they could sit and talk, and all the crowds would, wouldn't really necessarily know where they were. Now, what happens here is since it's Passover, 
There were rules during Passover about how far you could leave the city if you were a devout Jew. And so Gethsemane was within the boundary. And so it was a natural place because it was a private location and it was within the allowable boundary for Jesus and his disciples to go. Now, John captures these details for a reason, and I want you to know this. Jesus is not hiding. He points this out on purpose. He's saying, but the cross is coming. And rather than Jesus trying to play hard to get and not get arrested, he goes exactly to the place where Judas knows he will be. He's not avoiding Judas. He's not trying to evade arrest. He's not running from the brutal crucifixion to come. In fact, he goes exactly to the place people know he's going to be. Now, Judas arrives guiding some Jewish officials and a detachment of Roman soldiers. This word detachment is a technical term in the Roman military. And it refers to a cohort of a thousand soldiers. Now, that's on paper, okay? In practical reality, it was somewhere between 200 to 600 soldiers. That was actually what a detachment typically was for the Roman military. So, but technically, it was supposed to be 1,000, and it was 760 foot soldiers and 240 cavalry. Now, because it was somewhere maybe 200 to 600, these soldiers were stationed at the Antonia Fortress, which is a Roman fortress built right on the, the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, literally with windows high enough that they could see over the walls of the Temple Mount and they could watch what the Jews were doing. That's what the Romans did. Now, there was a detachment of soldiers here because it was the Passover, because the Romans were prepared for crowd control. Now, here's what I want you to see. It is possible that as many as 200 or more soldiers accompanied Judas to the garden. Can you imagine that? When it says there was a crowd, it's not a dozen. It's possibly 200. Now, this is likely because they'd heard of the supernatural powers of Jesus through all of his miracles and, he and healings. They wanted to be prepared. They're like, we can't let this guy get away. Let's get the whole detachment to come with us. Now, did you notice what happens next? Go to verse 4. Read the text here with me. Follow along. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus says, and Ju Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with him, with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you understand what's going on here? This is incredible. The text says that Jesus knew all that was going to happen. So he goes outside of the gate of this walled olive grove to meet the mob of Jewish officials and Roman soldiers face to face. And don't miss this. Jesus initiates the conversation. This is so important. He asks them, who is it that you want? He is in complete control in this entire situation. And when they say Jesus of Nazareth, he replies with these two simple words. Ego eimi in Greek, which is, we've seen before in the Gospel of John. It's the phrase, I am. Do you remember? There's been seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. 
And as readers of this gospel, John wants us to see this so clearly. We're, all of a sudden, our ears should perk up and go, oh my goodness, he just spoke the I am again. And what happens? 200 Roman soldiers draw back and fall to the ground when he speaks these words. Whoa! You see, these Jewish officials, these 200 Roman soldiers, Judas himself, they fall to the ground as though slain by the Holy One, the great I Am. See, I'll say it again. Jesus is in perfect sovereign control in this entire situation. In every aspect of these events, initiating the conversation, going exactly where they knew he was going to be, speaking these words, I Am. This is where we start to see the contrast of Jesus and Peter developing here, which points to the re unique redemptive work of Jesus through the cross. So let's go to that contrast now, because as the text unfolds, we start to see now at this point where Jesus is being arrested, Jesus and Peter start to diverge in two completely different paths. So as the narrative unfolds, Jesus is willingly giving himself up exercising his sovereign power in perfect control of the situation. He initiates, he speaks with authority. He blows away this mob with two simple words. And yet Peter takes a totally different tactic. He tries to take matters into his own hands. Pick it up in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Okay, do you see the absurdity of Peter's actions? It shouldn't surprise us, to be honest, because Peter's a shoot first, aim later kind of guy. When push comes to shove, he's like, I'm going to get my dagger out. That's what I'm going to do. And so uh, this is extreme because there's 200 Roman soldiers there, and he pulls out, the word that's used there is for like a tiny little dagger. It's essentially, Peter, you're looking at him and you're saying, you're going to pull out a small dagger, basically a pocket knife, to try and fight your way out of this situation. It's absurd, it's silly. And Jesus' rebuke of Peter, again, brings the sovereignty of God to the forefront. Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He is resolute. He knows that the wrath of God for sin is about to be poured out upon him, and yet he calmly and willingly takes the next step towards the cross. Now, the next three sections, as we go kind of paragraph or section by section here, alternate between Peter and Jesus. And John, who's writing this, he's representing these events as they unfold like a masterfully written movie script. He's, he's like doing jump cuts from one character to the next to show that there's two parallel things happening at the same time, that these two men are diverging into two completely different paths simultaneously. So let me walk you through these three different scenes. Okay, the first scene, verses 15 to 18, this is where Peter is questioned. Okay, Peter gets into the inner courtyard because of the other disciple. Did you notice that in the text? An unnamed disciple 
who know, who's known by the high priest and gets access. Now, most scholars think that this is the apostle John himself. It's typical in John's gospel that he doesn't refer to himself by name. He's usually called the beloved disciple. And so most people think there's some connection in his family or friendships that allowed him to be a known quantity within the high priest's courtyard. And so John leads Peter in. Now, as Peter enters, a servant girl asks him a question that's really an accusation. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Can you hear the derision in her voice? She's just looking down her nose at him and going, I, I can't believe you'd follow this guy. This is critical. Okay, look at Peter's reply. He says, I am not. It is the grammatical opposite of I am he that Jesus had just spoken. It's the exact opposite. In fact, Jesus twice says the words, I am. And twice we see Peter recorded as saying, I am not. This is not an accident in this passage. This first scene unfolds here in 15 to 18 and shows that Peter is doing the exact opposite of Jesus. Okay, let's go to the second scene now. Verses 19 to 24. This is where Jesus is questioned. Okay, you can see the section begins with this word, meanwhile. Say, here's our jump cut to another scene that's happening in parallel. We now go to the high priest's chambers itself, where Jesus is being questioned by Annas, who is one of the most powerful men in all of Israel. Now, give me, let me give you a little bit of background here. According to Jewish law, questioning the defendant was not strictly legal. You actually weren't allowed to do this. A case had to be made against someone by witnesses or by evidence. According to the procedure of Jewish law, it was required that witnesses in favor of the defendant would speak first, and then witnesses against the defendant would, defendant would speak second. And so for Annas to directly question Jesus secretly in the middle of the night by himself is a mistrial. So what does Jesus do at this moment? I want you to see this. He calls for witnesses in his favor. Look at the text. He challenges the procedure here. He calls for justice. Okay, look at uh, verse 21 to 23. Or sorry, 20 to 22. Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. He says, I've always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. He says, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when he said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? Look at the next line here. He says, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? I don't know if you see this, but he's, he's asking for the proper procedure. He's essentially saying, ask all these people who heard me. They'll speak in favor of me. And he gets slapped in the face. And then he says, testify to what I've done wrong, which would be the second testimony. And the person gives him the silent treatment. In every way, they're twisting the situation towards the ends that Annas wants to have, which is to get rid of Jesus. 
And so in every way here, Jesus is patiently, resolutely remaining faithful, even in this perversion of the way that the Jewish law would prescribe this to go. Now let's go to the third scene, all right? This is verses 25 to 27, where, G, where, where Peter is now questioned again. Look at how the text starts here in verse 25. Meanwhile, we're jumping back now to a totally different scene. Simon Peter is still there by the fire, and the servants around the fire, you can imagine this is dark, and the fire is flickering, and they're looking at his face in the dancing firelight, and they're, they're thinking that they recognize him from all these stories and things that Jesus had done, and they ask him this question once again. You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? The same accusation, the same opportunity for Peter to stick with Jesus as he promised he would, but he fails. And this is where he says the second, I am not. Then in verse 26, it goes even further. When he's confronted with evidence from an eyewitness, which remember is the proper procedure here. When he's confronted with evidence from an eyewitness, a relative of a man, the man whom Peter attacked with his knife, Peter denies it. In every way, Peter fails this test at the very moment when Jesus remains steadfast. Okay, let me just, after we've gone through these three scenes, lay out the contrast in summary. Jesus initiates the questions. When he's confronted about who he is, he responds by affirming, I am he. When Peter is questioned, he receives the questions. He doesn't ask them. And when he's confronted about who he is, he responds by denying, I am not. Jesus is on trial before the high priest and the council of Jewish elders who wield incredible power, who could sentence him to death, and yet he remains faithful. Peter's on trial before a servant girl and a campfire of nobodies who have no power to take his life, and yet he cowers in fear. Jesus speaks openly and encourages witnesses about what he has said and done and what to testify about him. Peter hides and he lies in every single way. They're doing the opposite. See, there's one New Testament scholar put it this way. John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Okay, here's the point of this contrast that's developed. Peter was one of Jesus' closest followers, a leader among the disciples, and likely the oldest and most mature. He talked a big game. He made lofty promises about his ability to stick with Jesus. He thought he could stand on his own two feet by his own strength and his own merit. And yet even this most loyal disciple disowns Jesus at the moment of truth. And Jesus is now all alone to bear the wrath and pay the penalty for sin and to defeat evil and death. This is, in fact, a, a fulfillment of prophecy that strike the shepherd and he will be abandoned. 
as the prophets have said. As, as, as Isaiah has prophesied in, verse, or in chapter 59 of Isaiah about the treachery of the leaders of Israel and the abandonment of the Messiah, listen to these words. I want to read a little section from Isaiah 59 that is an eerie foreshadowing of Annas and Peter. You'll see it on the screen. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. For our offenses are many in your sight. And our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord. Turning our backs on our God. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. Friends, what you need to see here in what Jesus is doing, what he is achieving, what we've studied here this morning in the John 18, in Peter's denial and in Jesus' faithfulness, is not merely a cautionary tale or moral lesson like, don't be like Peter. You could do better. That's not enough in this passage. Rather, this account is intended to humble us in our weak and sinful flesh. And most importantly, to elevate Jesus as the faithful one. To elevate Jesus as the supreme and sovereign Lord who is in control. To elevate Jesus as the one who is the sinless Savior who goes to the cross in your place. Even when we fail so that we would receive God's grace. An unmerited gift of redemption and new life. Let me remind you of Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Peter was still a sinner, Christ died for him. While Brent was still a sinner, Christ died for me. While you we're still a sinner. Christ died for you. We have to remember, friends, as we look at this text, that Peter's denial comes before the cross, before he's indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And you know what? This isn't the last we see of Peter. Because after Jesus dies and rises from the grave, he reinstates Peter and entrusts him with the leadership of the early church, not because he was so strong or so faithful or so impressive. We see him falling flat on his face. It was because he was a blood-bought child of God who knows the depth of his own depravity and his desperate need for salvation in Christ alone. That is the only reason he's qualified. You see, we might encounter similar questions or accusations as Peter in the world that we live in, in our lives, in our friendships or 
relationships that are our family. People might look at you and say, you don't believe all those religious myths, do you? You can't possibly believe that Jesus is the only way, can you? You aren't a Christian, are you? May we stand firm and steadfast in our faith and say, yes, I am. Yes, I believe. Not because we could possibly do better than Peter. But because as Peter, we see Peter in this passage pointing to that his salvation is in Christ alone. His only hope is in Jesus. And the same for us, that we in these moments where we're confronted with the same questions would fix our eyes on the crucified and risen Lord. And see him for who he truly is. Our only hope. Our only salvation. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, remember this, as we go now to the table to celebrate communion together, these are, uh, I, I desire for us to be drawn into uh, a deep fellowship with you of a spiritual nourishment of seeing and being reminded of the amount of, of, of incredible sovereign power and control and love and mercy and grace you've poured out upon us that as we watch these events unfold in this passage that we recognize our own failure, our own inability, our, our desperate need for you that when we're reminded of that, that we taste and touch these elements, that it draws us into a, a remembrance and a, a reflection on and a praise and honor to your name for what you have done for us. So Lord, let us stand firmly as we say, yes, I believe. Yes, I follow Jesus in the midst of the difficulties of this world, not on our own strength, but purely by the grace that we've received in the blood of Jesus. We stand firm. So let us commune with you in these ways this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.